Welcome, and thank you for joining Speak Up for Safer Care. Speak Up for Safer Care is a product of Safer Care Texas, the patient safety division at the University of North Texas Health Science Center in Fort Worth, Texas, where it is our mission to challenge traditional thinking to eliminate preventable harm. Speak Up for Safer Care illuminates gaps in care, process, or design that lead to preventable harm in all healthcare settings. I'm your host, John Sims, Director of Safer Care Texas, and joining me today is a special guest, Dr. Teresa Wagner. Hey, John. And our, our guest is Katie Grennan. Katie Grennan first started working um, in birth in 2010 as a doula, and a doula is a childbirth coach. Then she became a certified professional midwife and licensed Texas midwife in 2014. After six years of delivering babies at home and birth centers in the DFW area, she got her RN and BSN from the University of Texas at Arlington. She is now in her second semester studying nurse midwifery at Texas Tech in Lubbock, anticipating the completion of her MSN in the summer of 2023. Katie loves working with women and families and providing evidence-based care that is safe, comprehensive, and woman-centered. On completion of her master's degree, she hopes to practice in an area hospital as a certified nurse midwife and advanced practice nurse. Wow, impressive background, and I love your passion. Explain what led you to mid midwifery. Well, um... When I was pregnant with my fourth child, I decided I wanted to do the whole all-natural route. And so I, you know, took a Bradley childbirth class. I hired a doula for myself. Um, and I learned so much in that process. Um, and um, I really, I, I used an OB in the Denton area. I had a phenomenal experience. Um, and through the whole process, I just, it just really kind of lit a fire in me for evidence-based care. Um, and I um, really wanted to help other women do the same thing. So um, I became a doula first uh, to kind of see if my family could survive the on-call lifestyle. Um, and then really uh, wanted to pursue midwifery uh, to be able to provide care to women and families and birthing people um, in our area. Um, I love evidence-based care. I think it's so important to um, use the science that we have to give women a greater quality of care. Um, and so that kind of led me to start that path. And then, you know, it's been a process. So um, uh, as I delivered babies at home and at birth centers for years, and I loved it. I loved what I do, um, but really wanted to be able to serve a bigger population of women. So decided to go back and get a nursing degree um, and and then become a nurse midwife so that I could work both in hospital and out of hospital and, and meet the needs of more families. Well, thank you for joining this, um, this journey, and I, I love your passion. It's very needed, right? Um, our session today, this is our ninth episode, and it's entitled Maternal Challenges uh, from a Certified Midwife's Perspective. And so uh, my next question is maternal mortality, is it a nationwide problem? And where does Texas rank? Okay, yes, it's definitely a nationwide problem. Um, the CDC says about 700 women die each year from pregnancy-related causes. Wow. Um, and about two-thirds of those are preventable. So in 2022, you know, like, we need to do better than this. The U.S. is 
you know, arguably one of the wealthiest countries in the world. We have all this advanced technology at our disposal. Um, so what what is going on here? Why, you know, why is this happening? Um, in According to the, the World Health Organization, the U.S. ranks about number 57 in maternal mortality rates. Um, and there's countries like Iran, Russia, um, Albania, and Taiwan that have better maternal mortality rates than we do. Wow. So it's it's kind of shocking. Within the U.S., um, uh, the there the ten states with the worst uh, outcomes for mothers. Texas is number eight. So we've got a big problem here. In Texas, we're losing thirty point thirty four point five moms per one hundred thousand. So that's that's a lot. Yeah, this is a big state. That is a lot. Yes, yes. Um, so we've got some work to do. Well, when I first started hearing about the statistics around maternal mortality when I was writing my very first grant, I um, started thinking to myself, because I'm a health literacy expert, and I thought to myself, well, why are these women dying? Do they even understand that they're at risk? So what I want to ask you is what part do you think health literacy plays in maternal health, morbidity, and mortality? I, I think it plays... A big part. I think, you know, when I look at my role as a as a provider to women, um, I see education as a huge component in that. I really need to educate my patients on what's normal so that they can also identify what's not normal. Um, and, um, and then continue to, a big part of our appointments is dialogue about what to expect, you know, what red flags, warning signs, these kinds of of things that can help women identify, you know, when they need to reach out and then making sure they know that they can reach out, you know, they can um, reach and they can call their provider after hours if they need something, you know, they can go to the uh, emergency room if something is wrong, you know, making sure that they know that we're accessible to them to, to meet their needs. Yeah. And they need to be sure that they tell us that they recently had given birth because many times women show up at the emergency department and don't say that, you know, very important piece to their care. And then they don't get the treatment that they need and it ends up catastrophically. Right. Um, so as a part of my research on health literacy and moms, new moms, I developed an app called What About Mom? Have you seen that? I have seen it. I've looked over it. Yes, I think it's a great resource. I think, um, you know, I loved especially the piece on postpartum hemorrhage, you know, having those there's pictures in that app which show you what is a normal amount of bleeding. You know, this is so important. Hemorrhage is, I, according to the statistics that I've read, the number one killer of women postpartum. So it's a huge problem. So knowing what to expect, what is normal, what is not normal, when to seek care is, is a huge a huge component to that. Yeah. So do you think moms often overlook or providers underplay postpartum symptoms that might be detrimental to their health? Uh, yes. I think sometimes, yes, both. Um, I think, you know, I, I think that a lot of times, especially when you're in a big practice with a lot of doctors, you know, and you, it, it feels kind of distant. You feel kind of distant from your provider. Sometimes you see different 
providers at different visits, or your main doctor may not be the doctor that delivers your baby, you know, or you call the after hours line and you don't get the person who has been seeing you for your prenatal care or postpartum care. So I think I think sometimes it's hard to, as a mom, to communicate and make yourself heard. And I also think sometimes as a provider, it's hard to understand, you know, um, what exactly is going on uh, when somebody comes with a complaint. And I think that's probably even more true for like teen moms or um, women from marginalized backgrounds who aren't taken seriously because of implicit bias. Definitely. Yes, I agree. Sure. So yeah, uh, going back to the What About Mom app, very, very simplistic. And the pictures are, are wonderful because that it's, it shows you a picture. It's not just a bunch of words, right, that says if you got this much blood on the pad, then do this. There's an actual picture, mm-hmm. right? And um, I think that's very important. And I think not just with maternal mortality, but with a lot of healthcare information needs to be done in that format, in my humble opinion. So we've talked about some contributing factors um, to poor maternal mortality in Texas, which, as you noted, is number eight in the nation, and we're number 57th in the world. world. Yes. So we've got some work to do. You know, in patient safety, sometimes we get bogged down with, um, I, I hate this verbiage, but it's used a lot. Well, that's the way we've always done it, right? So what are some things maybe that you've seen that, this is the way we've always done it, that perhaps we need to change to have better outcomes. Oh, man. Um, Let's see. Well, for starters, I think we need to really challenge um, our practices when they don't line up with, you know, what ACOG uh, says and what our guidelines say. So for our Um, listeners, what does ACOG stand for? So ACOG is the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and they put out a bunch of protocols, you know, they, they, they take the evidence and they um, give us some standards that we can follow. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of times that providers can choose to deviate from those standards. And we do want our care individualized, which is massively important. But sometimes um, we kind of play on the lines of overly safe in, in one area, but it ends up to leading to more risks in another. So like an example of that is induction. You know, if we arbitrarily induce every woman at 39 weeks because we're afraid of fetal demise, you know, past 40 weeks, um, uh, you know, we, we run into some other problems that lead to problems down the line. So there's a huge correlation between induction and cesarean rates. So especially in our first-time moms um, and our moms that have never had a baby before, we induce them at 39 weeks. They're significantly more likely to have a cesarean. Cesarean is major abdominal surgery. You're going to bleed twice as much. You know, you're going to have the potential for higher risk of infection, all these things that lead to increased risk. So, and then down the line, she's at risk for uterine rupture in her next pregnancy, mm. um, which is something that, you know, we need to consider and take take seriously. And that will affect her care in her next pregnancies. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we reexamine what we're doing with that 39-week induction um, and not do that arbitrarily for every person just because, you know, then we can maybe mitigate some of those risks down the line. Does that make sense? Sure. 
Um, listening to you talk, there's there's it's a long term complication, but I know with any major abdominal surgeon, no surgery rather, um, you're at risk for adhesions, and so bowel obstructions bowel from obstruction. adhesions that requires sometimes another surgery. Right? Yes, and that's a lifelong complication that can uh-huh. happen in that woman's life. You know, as long as she's alive, that that is a complication from that any abdominal surgery. But sure. yes. So follow up to that question. Why do you think obstetricians are opting to when they induce that we're having more cesareans? Why do you think that that is? Um, you know, it, it's complicated. It's hard. It's multifaceted. Um, I think a lot of times we get focused on this pregnancy without looking at the big picture. Well, this mom might want to have five kids, you know, or maybe this mom will only have two kids. But a lot of pregnancies are in plan. So even if she's only planning to have two kids, she might end up with a couple more. But um, I think it's it's really easy to get focused on this pregnancy and this baby, which we want to have a good outcome with. Um, and so looking at the big picture of this woman's family planning and life is is a little bit more remote. Um, but uh, we also have like risk factors affecting this pregnancy. And um, we need to address those too. I mean, if she's if there's a good indication for an induction at 39 weeks, then that's what we have to do mm-hmm. for sure. But if there's not, and we're just doing it because it's arbitrary, then, then that's what I'm saying we really need to rethink. Do you think that... Um the low access to care, especially in rural or remote areas, plays a role in maternal mortality in our state, especially, you know, when we talk about best practices, many of those, if they even have health care services, are, have, are small and have limited resources. So they may not have like extra blood on hand or, you know, some of the things that are necessary to save a mom that gets into trouble. Sure, sure. And I think, you know, when we can, when we think we can control when and how birth takes place, which is a lot of our planned inductions and scheduled cesareans and stuff like that, we feel like we can be a little bit more prepared for those unknowns. Um, So that's a factor to also consider. But yes, there's a lot of rural communities that have very limited access to good pregnancy care. Um, and I think that that's, a, that's something that um, in the state, nurse midwifery can, nurse midwives can really step into that and help fill that, that gap a bit. Yeah, I, I, I think that's great. I really do. Um, the other thing that I'm thinking about is with, with the pandemic, we've got healthcare worker shortages, providers, nurses, everybody, right? Yes. And so I have to wonder if in the past or even in our in our future, could induction leading to cesarean births, could that be um, kind of an answer to a scheduling problem for the provider? The provider is available during this time. If we can do it in a, quote, controlled setting, then we can, you know what I mean? Do you yes. follow what I'm saying? Yes, I do. I do. And I think that that's a big part into why we're doing some of these things. So suppose that there's moms listening to this right now. What advice would you give them to empower them to prevent a poor outcome in their childbirth? What I tell my moms is that I want you to take ownership of your care, your pregnancy. This is your pregnancy. This is your body. This is your baby. Um, I want my patients to play an active role in their own care. And I think that that's so important. Um, You know, if you don't understand something your doctor or midwife is telling you, then ask 
get, ask for an explanation. Um, be involved. Make sure that what they're recommending to you is something that you feel like you can really do, you know. Um, your your choice in provider matters. You really want to find somebody that you can trust, who listens to your concerns, who treats you like an individual. Um, I think preconception counseling is really important, mm. especially if you're going into pregnancy with known risk factors. You know, uh, anything you can do to mitigate any of your risk factors is is massive at setting yourself up to have a low-risk pregnancy or as low-risk as possible. It's definitely a whole health model of maternal care, which is great because that's what we want is for people to be engaged. And and after birth, that's why we created the What About Mom app is so moms everywhere, including rural areas and with low health literacy, would be able to potentially save their own lives. Yes, certainly, certainly. Definitely. And um, to follow up on that, in our episode five and six, we had Ray Gonzalez on, and he's a nuclear power expert. And wow. I was just – I'm a huge advocate for – Patients, not being called patients, or clients, or customers, but partners in their own care, right? What he did before any of his family members have surgery is he calls a huddle with the whole team there. And one of the questions he asks is, if there is something unusual or uncertain, can I trust that you're going to stop the line and figure it out before you proceed on? And in the example that he shared – his his, uh, the, his medical team was all about that, right? Because they had gone through that training on human performance. And so they knew exactly what to do. But I just question, do, do par- our partners in care, do they, do they have that? Do they feel empowered to do that? Do they feel empowered to say, hey, we're all in this together. We're on the same team. I'm getting ready to be put asleep. I just want to make sure that you're going to stop the line if if something goes wrong. Definitely. Yeah, and I think um I think also like there's there's you can't underplay the role of just lifestyle modifications, you know. Quit smoking if you're a smoker or at least reduce the amount of smoking that you're doing. Exercise. You don't have to do anything complicated. Just walk 30 minutes a day. Eat a variety of foods. Eat healthy. Skip the Cokes. You know, those kinds of things. Those little changes that we make in pregnancy really go a long way. We're growing a baby. We're also growing a placenta. We're also growing a uterus. The uterus is going to grow exponentially um, during pregnancy, and it's a muscle. And, you know, I tell people just like you see these Olympians and they eat a nutrient-dense diet so that they can perform at peak level. We want our bodies to perform at peak level during pregnancy, so we have to feed it well. So, And it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be expensive. Just basic, good variety, you know, eggs every morning, milk, you know, just just the basics, some vegetables and whole grain and yeah, keep it simple. That's great. That you know, I love your analogy of the sports player cuz you are. I mean, I've had two children. It is like running a marathon. Yes. Um, and so we have to train for that. Definitely. But, you know, we also have to reach out to marginalized populations that don't have access easily to nutritious foods and it's, it's true. develop programs that can reach those people. Um, but we know that African Americans as a or tend to be a marginalized population that yes. has the highest risk of yes. maternal morbidity and mortality or having bad outcomes from birth. 
Um, so what? Do, why do you think that is? Have you looked into that? Well, I think it's complicated. Um, I do think that a lot of this comes down to implicit bias. Um, and I think we need to address that as, as healthcare providers. We need to continue to educate ourselves and identify and do the cultural competency stuff and all these things. It's important. It's saving lives. Um, I think, uh, you know, there's black women are dying at a rate of three times higher than than white women in this country in in um, from pregnancy related causes and that's that's a massive and shocking statistic to me I agree um, and um, we need to we need to address this um, and I think I think some of it is is some you know uh, implicit bias but I think it's a lot there, there's probably other factors as well. Um, but what we do know is that when we adjust these studies for um, socioeconomic status, we know that it is not, that that's not the issue. Um, I read one statistic recently that um, said that that black women with a college degree still have a 60% higher risk than white and Hispanic women who haven't even graduated from high school. So that is, that should like That's shake startling. shake us up. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah. it should shake us up. Yeah, so it could be related to systemic racism. Yes. That, you know, with microaggressions and stress over yes. time. Um, along with other um, chronic diseases that African-Americans tend to have a higher risk for as well. Because if you go into pregnancy with high blood pressure Correct. or um, diabetes, then your outcomes are more likely Right. To, to yes. Not those, be good. those are risk factors. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And so that's again goes back to your mitigating the risk factors. So if you know you have those things, then try to address them headed mm -hmm. into pregnancy with yes. that whole health mindset. Definitely. Yes. Um, if you could change one thing about the perinatal process, what would it be? <sighs> okay. One thing is hard. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot. <laughs> I have a short. I could. I could like name a short list. Um, I think we've got to address those routine inductions. I think that is um, that we really need to challenge doing that arbitrarily just because. Um, I also think that we should we need to stop doing repeat cesareans on women just because they've had a previous cesarean. Um, ACOG. Uh, really wants us to be offering VBACs, which is VBAC stands for vaginal birth after cesarean. Um, they really want us to be offering VBACs to our moms that have had one and sometimes two cesareans under the right situation and circumstances. Um, and and when we do that, I mean, a, a vaginal birth is just going to be less complicated than major abdominal surgery. It's going to carry less risk of hemorrhage. It's going to carry less risk to that mom long term down the line. So I think that's a big that's a big thing that we need to be advocating for. I think postpartum care needs to be more thorough. Um, some OBs will see their moms before discharge at the hospital and then not again until six weeks postpartum. So much can happen during that time. You know, I mean, just talking about preeclampsia, 25% of preeclampsia is going to happen in the postpartum period. How are we going to catch those moms if we're not seeing them? So we need to see moms uh, more, more regularly in the postpartum period. Um, and I think we really need to give moms individual 
individualized care. I think that that's so important. Every mom, I mean, we talk about these standards and these protocols, and they're great, but how we apply them is the art, right? So we need to look at that woman as a whole and um, and all of her risk factors and her lifestyle and her family even to some extent um, and really see what we can do to customize care for each of our patients. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes perfect sense. In my research on health literacy, what we found was that each woman would get a different discharge instruction. And so they might cover, you know, high blood pressure or the potential for strokes, but then they didn't cover if you have swelling in your legs, it could potentially be a blood clot. And so there were all of these risk factors or things that they should be monitoring. Again, why we developed the What About Mom app that would help them get through that six-week period of time, hopefully identifying what's going on for themselves and seeking emergent care if needed. Yes. Well, thank you, Katie, for sharing your knowledge and expertise today. And thank you for listening. Speak Up for Safer Care is a product of Safer Care Texas, the Patient Safety Division at the Health Science Center in Fort Worth, Texas. We'd like to thank our technical producer, Rob Upchurch. We are calling you to action. Speak up for safer care. If you are a healthcare worker, counselor, subject matter expert, former patient, or caregiver, and have a patient safety story, Safer Care Texas invites you to be our next guest. Please contact us through our website, safercaretexas.org. Also, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at at Safer Care Texas. We'll talk again next Wednesday. Thanks again for listening, and as always, speak up for safer care.